0: Thanks again, everyone, for coming back. Laszlo Montgomery here with part five of this handy vest pocket guide to the history of the Jewish refugees in China during the first half of the 20th century. Well, between the time Hitler became chancellor of Germany in 1933 up to about 1941, as many as 30,000 Jews had managed to make their way to the city of Shanghai most via Lloyd Tristino cruise ships departing from Italy, uh, the Trans-Siberian Railway, and by any other means possible. Some used Shanghai as a jumping-off point to other destinations, but for most, Shanghai was where they decided to tough it out. By 1941, China had already admitted more Jewish refugees than Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and India combined. As we get closer to December 7th, 1941, the numbers pretty much start to set, and those Jews who didn't get out of Europe in time prepared for the worst. I wanted to start off this episode by speaking about one other person. I mentioned Shan in Part 3. The one I'd like to introduce now was another diplomat who offered a lifeline to a group of Jews who might not have considered Shanghai before, but now saw it as their final hope. The man, his name was Sugihara Chioni. He had quite a life. He was a graduate from the Harbin Gakuin, Japan's training ground for future Soviet experts, of which Sugihara was one. He was the government official who led the deal team that negotiated the North Manchurian Railway away from the Soviets, and was director of the foreign ministry in Manchukuo. He was fluent in Russian. In November 1939, two months into the war, he was sent to Kovino, Lithuania, to go keep an eye on the Russians and Germans there and report back to Tokyo on any useful intel going on in the Baltic states. And he became the first Japanese diplomat posted to Lithuania, becoming the Japanese vice consul in the capital, Kaunas. While he was serving there in June of 1940, the Soviets occupied Lithuania, and the Jews there started feeling the heat almost at once. They had Hitler to the west and Stalin to the east. Talk about a rock in a hard place. So that summer of 1940, the Jews of Lithuania, including a lot of Polish Jews who had escaped to Lithuania, traveled to Kaunas, And in the Lithuanian capital, yeah, it was just like Vienna in late 1938, right after Kristallnacht. Jews there began knocking on the doors of every consulate in town looking for a visa. And on one July morning in 1940, Sugihara Chiyune looked out his window and saw what was going on with all the desperation in the streets. He didn't have any clear-cut instructions from Tokyo strictly prohibiting the issuing of visas. So he went to work, started churning them out, and got about as many as 1,800 visas issued before he got orders from above to stop issuing them unless the applicant had been properly screened to ensure they had sufficient funds to cover their own costs in Japan and that they wouldn't be a burden on the government. So he kept on going. Whether or not these desperate Jews had the kind of savings to satisfy the Japanese authorities, Sugihara didn't ask. In time, the Soviets stepped in and put the kibosh on these 10-day transit visas that Sugihara Chione was issuing. But for a while, some Soviet capitalists were okay running a racket that offered these Jews, who had received these visas, a seat on the Trans-Siberian of Vladivostok at five times the face value of the ticket. Then once they arrived at the end of the line, they would catch passage to Kobe, and then from Kobe later on to Shanghai. But in 1941, it was over. Another unsung hero from this time was Thaddeus Romer, a Polish diplomat who served as ambassador to Japan for a stint. He worked on the Tokyo side to assist these Jews who were able to get to Japan with the help of Sugihara Chione. He was able to get many of these arrivals resettled in various countries and was the key man in getting most of these Jewish refugees to Shanghai. And this was from August 1940 to November 1941. Sugihara Chione, he got about 2,140 of those visas issued before he couldn't do it anymore. And there were an additional 300 children also covered by many of these visas. One of the more famous stories of escape attributed to the efforts of Sugihara Chione was his role in rescuing all 400 or so members of the Mir Yeshiva. A Yeshiva, that's a Jewish school, to put it mildly. The curriculum back in those days, heavy on Torah and Talmud, light on the social studies and science. Anyway, all these yeshivas all over Germany and Central and Eastern Europe, they were all shut down, and the students and teachers, not skilled in anything productive in the eyes of the Nazis, ended up in concentration camps. But one of these schools got away, the mere yeshiva, As the name suggests, they're originally from Mir, which today is in Belarus, but Mir was one of those places that had changed hands over the centuries. Used to be in the Duchy of Lithuania, then the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, then the Russian Empire before it went back to Poland. Then the Soviet Union took it over in 1939, and then in 1941, Mir was overrun by the Nazis. And with this state of affairs, it wasn't a good environment for any yeshiva. So along with Approximately 2,000 or so Polish Jews, the entire faculty and student body of the Mary Yeshiva, first fled to Lithuania and were fortunate to escape the Holocaust by finding refuge ultimately in Shanghai. And they got to Shanghai thanks to Sugihara Shiuni. They were part of the 2,000-plus Polish and Lithuanian Jews who arrived in Shanghai via Japan and survived the Holocaust. And today, the Mary Yeshiva... Was bigger and badder than ever, the largest yeshiva in the world, I dare say, and based in the historic city of Jerusalem. They were the only Eastern European yeshiva to survive the Nazis. It's hard to say how many Jews were saved by Sugihara Chioni's actions. So many of the visas he issued covered whole families, not just a single person. The Simon Wiesenthal Center puts their estimate at about 6,000 Jews saved, and that more than 40,000 are alive today as descendants of these Polish and Lithuanian Jews issued these visas by Sugihara. There are stories about how even after the Lithuanian consulate was shuttered, Sugihara Chione kept writing these 10-day transit visas. He did them by hand from his hotel room at the metropolis, still there today. He issued each day what he'd normally process in a month, like Shan in Vienna years earlier. He did this up until the last day he was present in Konas. As for Sugihara, he was transferred to Prague and then to Bucharest until the end of the war. After V.E. Day, he fell into Soviet hands and lived under house arrest for years. He was repatriated back to Japan in 1947 and took an early retirement. He put his Russian fluency to work and took employment with a Japanese trading firm as their Moscow rep from 1960 to 1975. And like Hefeng Shan and Oskar Schindler, who saved so many thousands of Jews during such a dark hour, Sugihara who was also recognized by Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center, as righteous among nations. The ceremony honoring him was held in Israel in January 1985. At the ceremony, He spoke about his reasons for helping the Jewish refugees who came to him. And he said, You want to know about my motivation, don't you? Well, just the kind of sentiments anyone would have when he actually sees refugees face to face, begging, with tears in their eyes. He just cannot help but sympathize with them. Among the refugees were the elderly and women. They were so desperate that they went so far as to kiss my shoes. Yes, I actually witnessed such scenes with my own eyes. Also, I felt at the time that the Japanese government did not have any uniform opinion in Tokyo. Some Japanese military leaders were just scared because of the pressure from the Nazis, while other officials in the home ministry were simply ambivalent. People in Tokyo were not united. I felt it silly to deal with them, so I made up my mind not to wait for their reply. I knew that Somebody would surely complain about me in the future, but I myself thought this would be the right thing to do. There's nothing wrong in saving many people's lives. The spirit of humanity, philanthropy, neighborly friendship. With this spirit, I ventured to do what I did, confronting this most difficult decision, and because of this reason, I went ahead with redoubled courage. End quote. Sugihara Chione. 1900 to 1986. I hope you won't mind if I mention one last unsung hero from this time. Let me also tell you about the Nederlander, Jan Zwartendijk. His story was tied directly with Chiuni Sugihara's. Jan Zwartendijk had been sent to Kanas in uh, 1939 by his company, the Dutch electronics giant Philips, And it was not very long after he arrived in September 1939 that Hitler invaded Poland and the Jews there, of which there were many, fled to Lithuania. And as I mentioned, Sugihara came to the rescue of many of them. When Russia took over Lithuania in May 1940, it was do-or-die time. But before the Japanese transit visa issued by Sugihara could be used the Jewish visa holder needed to show he was ultimately destined to some other country somewhere in the world. Without that paper, the Soviets wouldn't let them pass through Russia on their way out of Lithuania. The Soviets wanted to avoid any attempts by these people to sneak off somewhere in Russia. Stalin already had enough destitute Jews there. And this is where Jans Vartendijk came in. Now, located off the coast of Venezuela... In between the islands of Aruba and Bonaire is the island of Curacao. at that time a Dutch possession. Jans Vartendijk, along with the Dutch ambassador for the Baltic region, L.P.J. de Decker, were able to supply thousands of these visas to Curacao. The scam was that the visas Vartendijk would issue would have official remarks stating on the paper that no visa was required for entrance to Curacao. This paper would serve as the visa. What was not stated on the document was that once they arrived in Curaçao, they needed a government permit in order to disembark there. So what you had, which someone had cleverly worked out with Svartendijk's cooperation, was that A, the government in Curaçao was not going to issue these government permits to stay in Curaçao once the Jews got there. And B, none of the Jews were planning to go to Curaçao anyway. These Curaçao visas issued by Jan Swartendijk, acting in the dual capacity of the Dutch consul in Kanos, they were used in conjunction with the Japanese transit visas issued by Sugihara to get out of Europe and onwards to any number of ultimate destinations, including Shanghai. And one of the other heroes who was able to maximize the lives saved was a Bachar at a yeshiva in Kanos. And this guy, Nathan Gutworth, was instrumental in figuring out the whole scheme with the curacao visas and facilitated, along with Zwartendyk, of course, the saving of 2,345 Polish and Lithuanian Jews. Jan Zwartendyk went out on a limb, despite the same pressures Sugihara and Khufungshan faced. And like them, he kept issuing these documents in a very short time until his operation was forced to wind down in early August 1940. And after that, Jan Zwartendyk returned to Nazi-occupied Netherlands, and he too, like Hefengshan. Shan, didn't go around telling people what he did in the war. Neither did he ask for any recognition or pat on the back. He died of cancer in 1976, and then following his death and after his story came to light, Yad Vashem in 1998, also accepted Jans Wartendyk into the Righteous Among Nations. So on the eve of Pearl Harbor, something like an additional 20,000 European Ashkenazi Jews of all shapes and sizes and circumstances had managed to squeeze themselves into Shanghai. Overwhelmingly, they were German, Austrian, Lithuanian, and Polish. Every one of them carried with them a similar story of persecution and horror a narrow escape, and leaving loved ones behind. You know, October 23rd, 1941, a month and a half before Pearl Harbor, the Germans prohibited Jewish emigration. They figured they had given the Jews long enough to get out. Right around that time, late 1941 and into 1942, the Nazis started rounding Jewish people up and began transporting them to the concentration camps. No more Shanghai option for anyone anymore. By the time of the early 1940s, the Jewish community of Shanghai had organized itself, and though none of the refugees had it easy, they all had a safety net. Those who couldn't afford a rat-infested tenement for their family to cram themselves into found residency in these shelters called Heime, German for home. About 2,000, 3,000 of the Jewish refugees lived in these shelters, six to uh, 150 per room, depending on the shelter. Besides the residents of these Hymen, there were thousands of others who daily filed in and out for a hot meal, but maintained lodging elsewhere. By late 1939, more than half of the Jewish refugees in Shanghai relied on financial assistance just to get by and sleep with a roof over their heads. Considering what was happening to European Jewry about this time, these hardships and the anguish endured by these Jewish refugees was trivial. They all didn't speak with one voice, and not everyone got along, and there were plenty of arguments. But overall, as it is with other communities, be it Armenian, Nigerian, Egyptian, Chinese, or any other, the ones who came before and who had found success rose to the occasion to assist those of their kind who came after, cap in hand. The Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor and their takeover of the Pacific Rim all the way to Burma changed the dynamic profoundly. All these years going back to the Marco Polo Bridge incident in July 1937, everyone knew what Japan was up to in China, but everyone kept up appearances and outwardly appeared neutral in front of Japan. And in return, Japan too kept up appearances. Where they could have put their foot down, they looked the other way. And not until the situation got out of control in mid-1939 did Japan mind one way or another about the European Jews using Shanghai as a place of refuge. Now things were different. It was a new chapter in the history of World War II. All the cards were on the table now. No need for niceties or anything like that. On December 8, 1941, the Japanese took over the city of Shanghai, including the international settlement and French concession. All allies, that is, British, French, and Americans, into the internment camps they went, just like in Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun, featuring my very own doppelganger, John Malkovich, in one of his greatest roles. I mentioned the JDC in Part 2, I think, the Joint Distribution Committee, based in New York. They acted as the funnel that directed funds to Jews in need all over the world. They had their work cut out for them in Shanghai. Before we move on, I wanted to stress again how critical the JDC was all this time, especially to the most desperate refugees. And I only wanted to mention another hero from these years. heroine actually, Laura L. Margolis. You can read up on the details of her story. Quite an extraordinary woman, especially for the times she lived in, the kind of mountains she moved, To help many of the Jewish refugees in Shanghai, it would have been impossible to most of us. The JDC sent her to Shanghai to go deal with this crisis. She sailed there alone. I mean, it was probably nothing for her. But in 1941, it still wasn't so commonplace where you'd see a woman traveling overseas unaccompanied. As soon as she arrived in Shanghai, April 1941, she was joined by another hero in our story, Manny Siegel. And these two, from the JDC, hit the ground running and over the next six months got an entire operation organized and in place that provided assistance to the most vulnerable of the 20 or so thousand Jews living hard in the Hongkou district of Shanghai. Laura Margolis, this name that probably means nothing to many of you, not an A-lister from the history of this time, but in the history of the Jewish refugees in Shanghai, She gets top billing. There were many among the Jewish refugees, or Shanghai Landers, as they called themselves, who stepped up and took a lead role in caring for the community as a whole. So Laura Margolis, she and Manny Siegel, they were veterans at the JDC, so they knew how to do their job well. And after a while, everything was fine until December 8th, 1941, and then it wasn't. After the U.S. declared war on Japan... The lines of communication were cut between China and the U.S., and organizations like the JDC that relied on overseas funding found that funding cut off. And with so many lives at stake, and now everything turned on its head, people had to improvise. And this included the JDC, who still had to find a way to keep thousands of families above the waterline. And this hit the JDC hard you know, in the aid business, you know, funding is pretty important. All overseas relief funds, relief supplies, all was now prohibited. Banking, nobody could send or receive money. So Laura Margolis had to make things up as she went along and, you know, December, January 1941, 1942, and the Japanese were kind of busy and their Jewish problem was not high up on the list of priorities. She was able to work something out with the Japanese authorities in Shanghai, whereby they allowed Laura Margolis to get around the prohibitions and be allowed to get access to funds that could keep the soup kitchens going. In return for facilitating this exception to the rules put in place, the Japanese told Laura Margolis, this whole Jewish refugee mess, consider it yours, you administer it. The more I read about Laura Margolis, the more I realize that to have The lives of thousands suddenly thrown in your lap and to become responsible for them and ensure no one fell through the cracks? No biggie for her. By February 1942, though they had run out of money and because the war was now raging around the world, theirs was just one of millions of problems. By then there were about 8,000 Jewish refugees living day to day and just getting by thanks to the rations doled out by the JDC-funded soup kitchens. When it came to the end, Laura had to be the bad guy who cut those 8,000 rations into 4,000, and only the most vulnerable would be taken care of. Women, children, the sick, the elderly. The JDC-funded clinics ran out of supplies. Patients suffered or perished. Only the most necessary of necessities of life if they could be afforded, were to be had. So by this time, early 1942, freezing cold Shanghai, the world at war with the JDC running on fumes, the word went out to the Jewish community in Shanghai, all over Hong Kong. And those Jews, who still kept a little something hidden away for a rainy day, they all knew that day had come and it was upon them. And enough money was pooled to keep the kitchens going another week. 1942-43, you'd think the Jewish refugees had seen the worst with Hitler and the Nazis, but 1942-43, there was a lot of suffering and a lot of death. More than 700 Jews died just in those two years. All those upper-class and more well-off Jews who had lived all these years in the French concession. Now we're scrimping and saving like everyone else, not living so large like the good old days. Laura Margolis and Manny Siegel, somehow they managed to keep things going until February 1943, when they both got interned in some camp. By then, all the heaviest lifting had been taken care of, and things were in place sufficiently enough where they not being present and bring things to a halt. They had solved the financing problem by sending wires through banks in neutral countries in South America and Switzerland. The Japanese repatriated Laura Margolis to the States in September 1943 and Manny Siegel after the war ended. When she got back to America, Laura got the word out about what was happening in Shanghai, and she went on to other posts for the Joint Distribution Committee after the war ended, in France first. Laura Margolis died September 9, 1997, at the New York headquarters of the JDC. There's a plaque there that commemorates her work in Shanghai and all the places she served. She lived to 93. Something to be said for that. Anyway, back to our story. While Laura was doing her good work in 1942, into this miserable time for the Jewish people, all huddled together in Shanghai, came Joseph Albert Meisinger. He was head of the Gestapo in the Far East. In Poland, they knew him as the Butcher of Warsaw. He was head of the Gestapo there and was directly responsible for the death of tens of thousands of Poles. So he rolled into Shanghai in the summer of '42, July 1942. He came to Shanghai from Japan. Rumors surrounded the reasons for his visit. Jews who were aware of what was going on knew whatever it was, it wasn't going to be good for them. Considering Meisinger's reputation and his rank in the Gestapo, word spread fast, and the wildest rumors began to surface about what he had in store for the Jews of Shanghai. Two of the more popular rumors was that Meisinger was going to herd all the Jewish refugees onto vessels and sail them offshore and sink them, or that the Jews were going to be rounded up and shipped off to some deserted island left to perish. At this point, anything was believable. As far as the Jews were concerned, Meisinger's visit surely had something to do with encouraging his Japanese allies to get on the Final Solution bandway and be a little less accommodating to all these Jews living in Shanghai. He let them know Germany's position regarding allowing Jews refuge in Shanghai and that they should be sent back to Germany. There was even a rumor that He had brought a canister of Zyklon B with him. In his meetings with Japanese consular officials, military police, and the Japanese Bureau of Jewish Affairs, Meisinger offered Germany's technical and other kinds of assistance in dealing with the Jews in Shanghai. Japan had only to ask. You know, there's a story I read. Well, it was never proven, but I'll tell it anyway. True or not, it was a great anecdote from the time. It concerns one of the most revered Hasidic Rebbies, Shimon Sholem Kalish. After Meisinger had left, the Japanese military governor, who had hosted him, called an informal meeting of Jewish community leaders, and Rebbe Kalish was among them. Fischl had heard an airful from Colonel Meisinger, and now he was curious to hear from the Jews what their side of the story was. So at some point in the meeting... Japanese military governor turned to Rebbe Kalish and asked him, Why do the Germans hate you Jews so much? And Rebbe Kalish, eh, not too much writing on his answer except the possible fate of over 20,000 Jews, looked right back at him and said, They hate us because we are Orientals. Well, again, whether or not this story is true isn't known. But the Japanese ended up not acceding to the Germans' request to deal with the Jews in a certain manner. They didn't single them out for persecution. For their own reasons, the Japanese government or the military, eh, killing the Jews wasn't part of their mission. But neither did they leave them be, whether it was pressure from Germany or perhaps throwing Hitler a bone. In October 1942, the Japanese issued an edict that ordered all enemy nationals over 13 to wear a bright red cotton armband with the first letter of their nationality and a registration number of sorts. Then on November 15, 1942, the idea of a ghetto or restricted area was approved. And then on February 18th, 1943, a week to the day before the birth of George Harrison in the sacred city of Liverpool, the Japanese authorities ordered all stateless refugees who had reached Shanghai after January 1st, 1937 to all move to a certain area inside the Hongkou District. And this became known as the Shanghai Ghetto. And we're going to look at that next episode. Please do come back for that one. Well, that's it. We only paid for a half hour here at the Record Plant West. They're kicking me out. Laszlo Montgomery, signing off from fantastic L.A., wishing everyone all the best. If it wasn't for you, who'd listen to this show? Let's make it a date in two weeks' time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.